Amen. If you take your copy of the Lord's Word and turn to not very far, turn to Genesis chapter 4, verses 16 through 26. Genesis chapter 4, verses 16 through 26. I know you're excited today because we're going to read a genealogy. That's always fun in the scripture. But I don't want to talk to you specifically about genealogies. I want to talk to you specifically about leaving a legacy. As we've continued through our series on the family, talking about what it means to thrive, going, moving on just survival, we've looked at the aspects of being a spouse, a parent, a child, those things. But I want to talk to you specifically about the interconnectedness. The very first message that we did was one on the family tree. Um, the fact that we're connected to each other as families intergenerationally. And I want to talk to you today in that vein on this specific word called legacy. Before I read the scripture, I want to give you a statement this morning. The legacy you leave will be the foundation for your family and for generations to come. The legacy you leave will be the foundation for your family and for generations to come. Before I begin reading, let me give you a little background information since we are just kind of landing the plane in Genesis 4 today. What has just happened? Well, if you were reading along in Genesis 4, you would have just read that Cain murdered his brother Abel. These were, as far as we know, the only two brothers on the earth at that time. Maybe there were a few sisters around, I don't know. Maybe there were other brothers, but the text doesn't specifically mention it. Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, and you know the story. Abel offered a more acceptable sacrifice to God than Cain did. And then rather repenting of his ways and offering an acceptable sacrifice, Cain became angry, invited his brother into the field, and then killed him. And then after being confronted by God, God told Cain that Cain was not going to die, obviously, because God cursed him to be a wanderer. Or more specifically, he said that now Cain is now cursed because of what he'd done. And then Cain goes east from the presence of God. And if you're reading in the scripture, going east in the scripture, especially in the Old Testament, is symbolic of moving away from God. That is not to say that, hey, listen, if you live east today, that you're somehow far from God. No, it's just a literary device used in the Old Testament to say that you're moving further and further from the place where God is. So I'm going to pick up the story now in verse number 16 at the end of Cain killing Abel. It says, Then the Lord, or then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. There's that word again, east. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael, 
Mahujael fathered Methusael, and Methusael fathered Lamech. Now listen to what happens in verse 19. And Lamech took two wives. By the way, this is the first uh, example of polygamy or bigamy in the Bible. Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. Ada bore Jabal and was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubalcane. He was the forger, forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. So this is the Bronze and Iron Age according to the Bible. The sister of Tubalcane was Nema. Lamech said to his wives, now listen to this. This is interesting that it's just a direct quote landed right here in the genealogies. Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. All right, let me pause here for just a second. What's going on here? Well, first of all, this guy Lamech is apparently a character. He's the first one that's like, hey, why have one wife we can have two? So he takes two wives. So he's like bringing in wives almost like you would collect property. Then not only that, there's apparently a young man who wounds him, presumably unintentionally, and he kills him. He actually sheds blood and kills this man who did not deserve to die. But then on top of it, he brags about it. And he says, if Cain's curse was sevenfold, then mine is to be seventy-sevenfold. This guy is boldly embracing violence. Look at verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. To Seth, a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. The legacy you leave will be the foundation for your family and for generations to come. Principle number one is this, is that leaving a legacy is not optional. It is unavoidable. Leaving a legacy is not optional. It is unavoidable. I was talking to some of our young professionals here recently, and we were talking about trusting God and uh, leading um, each of us to our mate in the future, if it's God's will for us to be married. And one of them asked me a question. They said, Matt, how do you know that you found the right guy? And that's a very humbling question to be asked because I didn't tell the girl, I have no idea. But... Um, <laughs> You just trust God. But uh, there are some practical things. 
And I said, I think it's this. When you find one that you can look at and say, I want my son, if I have a son one day, to grow up and be like that man right there. I said, if you want a son to be like that man, then that man might be marriage material. And then I told them, and I told the young lady that was there, I said, because if you have a son, he will become his dad. It's legacy. Not exactly. Not a carbon copy. I know we're all unique. You've heard the whole thumbprint thing that we all have an original thumbprint. We all learned in kindergarten that, listen, look at your thumb. You see your you know, unique signature. This means that you're not somebody. You're thumbbody. I know you've heard that, right? But we become our parents. We become our grandparents. Legacy is a real thing. Impersonation, I'm told, is the highest form of flattery. I was reading an article this week about a guy I got to meet when my son passed away. I'd listened to him for years. This guy by the name of Steve Brown. He has a radio ministry. You've heard me talk about him before. If you listen to AFR, you can occasionally hear him on his little one-minute thing called You Think About That. He's a really deep voice. But um, I got to know Steve personally through Judah's passing. But anyway, Steve <laughs> tells this story that when he was pastoring, this is years ago now, in Miami, and he said, I was just a pastor of a small church in Miami. I was uh, enjoying ministry down there. I got a phone call one day at the church, church office, and uh, he said, the voice on their other end said, hello, Steve, this is Billy Graham. And Steve, being a smart aleck, says, well, hi, Billy, this is Abraham Lincoln. And the reason he did that, he said, because one of my friends was a great Billy Graham impersonator. He said, but the problem was it really happened to be. It was Billy Graham. So that became really awkward. Um, impersonation. Perhaps you've seen an impersonator, somebody who can nail not just the voice, but the facial expressions, the gestures. And when you see someone's impersonating, we're told that, hey, that, listen, that's the highest form of flattery. Well, your children, your grandchildren, your family is going to impersonate you. And they're going to impersonate you whether you like it or not. Uh, this year, as you've heard me mention already, I did it as a trial run for next year. Um, I read uh, and preach out of uh, the English Standard Version here each week. I did boast of my Bible memory as a ch child from the King James Version. Um, I, when I was an, a youth minister, I used the NIV. Uh, but this past year, I've read through the New Living Translation. Perhaps you've remembered the, the Living Bible that came out, oh gosh, probably 40, 50 years ago now. The Living Bible, though, was a paraphrase. It was not a translation. But in the spirit of the Living Bible, the New Living Translation, the actual translation of Scripture, came out probably 20 years ago now. I don't know the exact dates now by Tyndale Publishers. But I've been reading through the New Living Translation this year, and I did it as a trial run for me personally because I'd never read, th read through the whole Bible in the New Living Translation. And I was going to do it as a trial run to see how it affected my life and then if you wanted to, to encourage you to do that next year unless there's a translation more near and dear to your heart. That's fine. As long as we're reading the Bible, that's the most important thing. Uh, 
but right now in my reading of the New Living Translation yesterday, I just wrapped up the book of 2 Kings. And 1 and 2 Kings really is a sad story. You read about all of these kings who did evil in the sight of the Lord and evil in the sight of the Lord, and then they die, and then their son comes and does evil in the sight of the Lord over and over and over and over again. And occasionally, you'll see a, a king that did what was right and pleased the Lord, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. But it seems like this negative sinful legacy is so hard to shake. And you can see it in Second Kings. But you can also see it here. You know, essentially, there were two families on the earth at this time. There was the family of Cain and the family of Seth. You have Cain who had the son and named him Enoch, which, by the way, means human. And then you have Seth who had a son and named him Enosh, which means human but frail human. That's interesting. But what we see here is there is a legacy. Does it come as any shock to us that Cain would produce a guy like Lamech? It shouldn't come as a shock to us. Because there are two family legacies in the Bible, Cain's family and Seth's family. When you start here at the beginning, and ultimately it leads to a flood taking place a few chapters later, but we see that leaving a legacy is not optional, it is unavoidable. Principle number two, let's talk about these two legacies. First, let's talk about Cain's legacy. Cain left a legacy of running. Running. Running where? First, running from God. Running from God. We don't have time to go back there, but in the story that we did not read today, one of the things that God confronts Cain with is that, listen, if you will not do will, well, will you not be accepted? Meaning, if you'll just do what I've called you to do, I'll accept your sacrifice, Cain. I don't love Abel more than I love you, is what he is saying. But instead of doing what he is expected of him, what does he do? He runs from God. And then, as you look down in verse number 16, he moves to the land of Nod, which, by the way, means wandering. He moves to a land of wandering, and he moves east of Eden, in becoming a man of running, running from God, also running from responsibility, Running from responsibility. Rather than making things right with his parents, if you look carefully in the text, when God tells him, God does not say, I'm going to force you to wander, but rather, you will be a wanderer. Because of what you've done, this is what you're going to do. Sin has consequences. And he runs from responsibility. Proverbs 28, verse 1, the first part, 1a, the wicked flee when no one pursues. One of the legacies of evil and wickedness is running. Running. Running from God. Running from responsibility. Another one, running from family. Cain has to get away from mom and dad because he's ashamed of what he has done. He has to get away from brothers and sisters if they're around or the ones that will be, he's assuming that someone's going to kill him for what he's done, so they're 
probably was more people there. There's a classic question that, you know, where did Cain get his wife and what about all the brothers and sisters? And there's about three or four really good answers to that, none of which we know for sure. But we know he got one somewhere because he had a child. Running from family. Another one is running to novelty. Notice what his family does is running to novelty. Look down on what he does in verse number 17. Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch and he built a city. And he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. Now, this is the first city that we have in Scripture. So Cain, now a man who is on the run from God, on the run from responsibility, and on the run from family, and is now fleeing away from the place and the presence of God, he builds a city. And if you read the full extent of the Bible, cities actually become this marker, this city of man becomes a marker of trying to make it in this world without God. Because when you're in the city, you don't have to farm and grow things and you just have things there in the city. You don't have to trust God like the farmer does out on the prairie because, listen, you, you can just have all these resources at your disposal. City becomes symbolic in the scripture of s- someone who is trying to make it in this world apart from God. Cain's family gives itself to novelty because not only does Cain invent the city, what else does his family do? Well, he invents those who care for livestock. Also, his family invents music or culture. Also, not just that specifically, but tools of bronze for cultivation. And then also, that would be bronze and iron that would be weapons as well his family becomes just going after the next thing that Cain because he's on the run from God is constantly pursuing the next thing which leads me to the next thing about Cain's family which is not just running from God running from responsibility running from family running to novelty but running over others like where does this all lead all chasing the next thing eventually comes to running over others because there you have Lamech's story which he he said listen a guy struck me or bumped into me whatever it is and I killed him for it and I was glad to and I'll do it again and if Cain's vengeance was seven mine's 77 he's bragging about this violence he's bragging about running over people Cain's people have become a dog-eat-dog world this is the legacy of Cain that when you run from God run from responsibility run from family and you run to novelty and you're looking for the next best thing you eventually run over everyone else And then you leave a legacy of that, and then all of your children will do that too. Rather than trusting, it's triumphing over everyone else. And this is the legacy of Cain. Principle number three, though, is that Seth, rather than leaving a legacy of running, Seth left a legacy of remaining. I want you to look down in verse number 25. It says, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son, and called his name 
Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Seth's legacy is very different than Cain's. First, there is a legacy of remaining, staying where God is. And embracing God. One of the things that we're going to look at over and over again in the next few minutes is this verse in verse 26. It is the first expression of worship we have in the whole Bible. Right here. Verse 26. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. Men began to call on the name of the Lord right here. This is the first expression of worship in the Bible. And it started by embracing God. Embracing God. But not just embracing God, but embracing responsibility. Embracing responsibility. Listen, Proverbs 28.1, I read to you the first part earlier. Listen to the same thing, the full this time. The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. Not just embracing God and embracing responsibility, but embracing family. Here Seth is staying. He is with his parents. He's making this thing work. He's embracing not just God and responsibility, but he's embracing his family. And he is also embracing his name. It's interesting. I told you earlier that Enoch means humanity. Human, man. Enosh means man too, but there is at least among many Bible scholars, they believe that it, there's a focus in the word Enosh on the frailty of human life. And as I read that this week, I was thinking, man, what a contrast between these two families. You have Cain's family that says, I'm a man, get out of my way. And Seth's family that says, I'm a man, God help me. What a massive difference between these two families and legacies that you could find just in the names of these men. Embracing the fragility of life and also embracing the hope of a coming better world. There is nothing about Cain's family line that gives me the expectation that they are longing to return to Eden. No. They are getting specifically, as you see in verse 16, further and further from Eden. Seth's family, however, is different. They're longing to return to Eden. They're looking forward to the day when all this wrong is going to be made right and once again that they will be reunited with God and this is demonstrated by them staying in the Lord's presence and calling upon God. Which brings me to the next principle which is our final one for today which is this. The legacy of Seth is the legacy of a worshiper. The legacy of Seth is the legacy of a worshiper. Friends, the mark of genuine faith 
is calling on the Lord. I want you to look in verse number 26 again. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. I wonder why. I mean, let's think about it. What about the time before? Well, it was just Adam and Eve and Cain, right? And the other siblings that we know that are around. And if there were other people, God alone knows at this point. What was going on? I don't know. What was going on before this day happened, this date in history where men and women began to call on the name of the Lord? You know what? It makes me wonder a little bit because it comes as no surprise to me that I don't know if you catch this, but the first calling upon God that we read about in the whole Bible is when somebody becomes a parent. Seriously. You had Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. Now you have Seth. I don't know what it was. Maybe Enosh had a physical problem. Maybe Enosh had a sickness. Maybe Enosh was a great, healthy, bouncing baby boy. But Seth was so worried that what can I do to prevent my boy Enosh from becoming like Uncle Cain? I don't know. But I want you to see here the first place in the Bible where people began to call upon God is one of the oldest stories of someone being a parent in the entire Bible. And that comes as no shock to me. Of course, you know, many of you, I'm assuming, that I am a parent. I have six children, one in heaven, uh, and then also some babies that were, died in utero through miscarriages that I believe I'll see one day in heaven. Um, you've heard me say this multiple times, but it's worth saying again. Judah, and then those four children that died in utero, um, are in heaven and they're with Jesus. I don't worry about them ever. Like, not even a little bit. I don't wake up and think, oh, I wonder if they're okay. I have this deep, abiding confidence that everything is okay. They are safe in the arms of Jesus and they are experiencing life that I cannot possibly comprehend. However, these other five, you've heard me say this, I worry about them all the time. Now, you're saying, Pastor, listen, you know that, you know, it's bad to worry. Jesus says, don't worry about your life. Well, I'm not worried about my life. I'm worried about their lives. <laughs> but listen, it's, it's so hard not to do. And I understand that if I was a better Christian, I wouldn't worry. And maybe you figured it out, how to not worry about your kids. If you would mind sharing that mate with me, we would bottle that up and then we will sell that and then we will be multi-billionaires, right? It comes as no shock to me that the first crying out to God was from a daddy after his son came into the world. 
Romans 10, 13 through 14 says this. I don't know if you've ever caught, caught this before. I'll look at it up on the screen. This is Paul speaking in the book of Romans. Notice the progression. It's put in reverse order. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Let's keep it there on the screen. You see, this is the reverse order. Calling is not the beginning of coming to know God. Calling is the fruit of what it means to know God. Listen, if you put it in reverse order, it's that, listen, there's preaching. So the word of God goes out and people hear the word of God. And then upon hearing the word of God, they believe the word of God. And then by believing and becoming a Christian and a believer and a follower of Jesus, what do they do? They call upon the name of the Lord, not just to be saved, but it is a, it is, it's a life. It goes back right here to Genesis 4, 26. This is the life that God has called us to. This is the legacy of worship. That salvation leads to this place is that where we begin to take our life, offering it to God and calling upon Him for all of our needs and because of who he is listen to a few verses on calling on the lord psalm 120 verse 1 in my distress i called to the lord and he answered me psalm 145 18 the lord is near to all who call on him to all who call on him in truth Listen to 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 22. Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. You see this in the scripture? This phrase of calling on God, it's the mark of what it means to belong to God. Psalm 50 and verse number 15. And call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. If I were to ask you today, how many of you are here today because mom and dad brought you to church when you were younger? How many of you would that be? Would you all lift your hands? That's like a lot of people. And if your testimony is different, that's beautiful too. God works in many ways. But did you see what just happened? Why are we here? Well, we're here because Jesus is alive and he's real and he's changed our lives. Yes. But we're here because mom and dad brought us. We're here. Why do you pray at night before you go to sleep? For many of us, for me, it's because, yes, I know that I feel the need and the urge to pray, but if I'm honest, that started when I was a little boy. When mom and dad came in my room at night and tucked me in, and dad sang me a song, mama kissed me, and then they prayed with me. 
That didn't happen every night because they're busy and things going on, but it happened a lot. Why do I do that? Because of mom and dad. I was listening to John Piper, who's a pastor. He's now retired. He was a Baptist pastor up in uh, the Midwest, northern Midwest in Michigan for many years. I was at a conference. He was talking. They were talking about the inerrancy of Scripture. And Dr. Piper did his, I think he did his Ph.D. in historical theology, if I'm remembering correctly. Anyway, they asked Dr. Piper, they said, Dr. Piper, uh, why, why do you believe the Bible's the inspired word of God? And we're all at the conference like, oh, he's about to, all right, what's he about to say? This is going to be good. And he said, because my mom told me it was. Wow. What is that? That's legacy. That's legacy. I know it's a chore to get here on Sunday mornings. I know it's a chore and I know it's hard. Listen, with all the children at my house, we have totally lost all of our religion by the time we get here. (laughs) And listen, God has done a great kindness to me. I get to come early. And be a part of this service. So it's all on Andrea. And she's so faithful to take care of her children to make sure they're here. It's hard to get to this place. But you are laying foundation stones for the next generation and the generation to come. You say, Brother Matt, my kids aren't even in church anymore. I'm retired now. No, no, no. You have no idea what it does to a child and a grandchild to know it's Sunday morning. Mamaw's in church today. You say, no, they don't care about that stuff. They care way more than you think they do. That foundational laying that, listen, we're going to be a family that is for me and my house. We're going to serve the Lord And we're going to call upon him. As a closing thought, as I was looking at this passage this week, as I was thinking about my children, if they can pick one thing up off of me, I want them to pick up that on the good days, on the bad days, and on the days when the bottom fell out, mom and dad called upon the name of the Lord. Because whatever caused that to happen in Genesis 4.26, we're still talking about six, seven, eight thousand years later, whatever it is. We're still talking about it. I... uh, I'm going to take a moment to brag on my wife since she's not here because I just said something bad about her. Um, she sings to our children at night, and there's this song called The Blessing. It's taken from the blessing out of number six that we do. The Lord bless you and keep you. And the, it goes like this. Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you. She sings to that to them every night. 
I had them in the car with me. Peter, Lucy, the two. And we get stuck at the train, which is a regular ritual. (laughs) And I was frustrated, because that meant we were going to be late. And um, I'm not saying much. I'm just thinking about, you know, wondering what these people are doing in the train and why can't it move faster. Um, And Peter began to sing the blessing. And then Lucy joined in and started to sing it too. And it made me think, wow, for all that we're doing wrong, God, we must be doing something right. (laughs) Lord, help that stick with my children so that when they grow up and mom and dad aren't there anymore their life can look like a life that calls on the name of Jesus you may think that being here this morning is not a big deal you may think that praying at dinner time is not a big deal you may think that singing to your children and grandchildren at night and saying a prayer over them It's not a big deal. No. You are putting stones in their foundation which cannot be moved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray today that, Lord, you would help us to leave a legacy like Seth. That our children as they think of our triumphs, our terrors, all those things, they will remember how mom and dad, grandmom and granddad, aunt and uncle called upon Jesus and turned to him. And somehow, even in all the craziness, all the emotions were able to maintain a posture of worship Lord that's what I want my legacy to be I want my children to remember that and never lose it Lord I pray for my brothers and sisters here today Lord when we hear messages like this of Seth doing something right the temptation is to think well that can never be my family uh Lord, we're reading one moment in Seth's life. There were probably many that didn't need to be written down. Lord, help us to take a first step today. Maybe it will be praying at lunch today. Maybe it will be, hey, we're going to stay for Sunday school. Maybe it will be, let me pray with you before I kiss you goodnight tonight. Just baby steps that we might be that house that serves the Lord. For it's in the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.